Episode 205 of the PJ Archive is an interview I did with the wonderfully witty English actress, writer and comedienne Maureen Lipman. Maureen is perhaps best known from TV series such as Agony, Coronation Street and Celebrity Gogglebox, films like Up the Junction and The Pianist, and countless stage shows including Wonderful Town and Oklahoma. This interview from 1996 took place in, and was partly about, her home in North London, where she lived with her husband, the distinguished playwright Jack Rosenthal, who sadly died in 2004. At this time, she was promoting the video Maureen Lipman Live and Kidding. Right, OK, tell us about the video then. <laughs> <laughs> well, your guess is as good as mine, really. Um... It's a, um, a sort of my first attempt at stand-up, sort of crouch down, really. Um, the idea to do a one-person show, a sort of evening with Maureen Lipman, came because Agony was cancelled, the second series of Agony was cancelled. So in order not to jump off Tower Bridge, I thought I'd put a show together. And that took care of the summer. And my son was away in China, backpacking in India and places like that. So I used his bedroom, because he's the only person with a tape recorder, whatever they're called now. And um, I just sat in there on my own for three weeks and wrote and got terribly low. And then uh, a chap called Tim Luscombe, who's a young director who did Private Lives with Joan Collins, so he must be quite strong. He came and sat in the bedroom and laughed a lot, <laughs> also at the show. And... Um, helped me a bit and then we went off to do it at Chichester in the main house at Chichester which is uh, quite sort of bold move because it seats about 1400 people. Was it quite daunting doing stand-up after all these years? Well the thing is that the reason I did it really is because I thought well I, I do this often enough and I don't get paid for it you know welcome to the save the dyslexic dolphin in the Negev desert charity foundation you know I'm your host your genial host let me tell you a few jokes have you heard the one about? So I thought, you know, it can't be that much different, really, to do it mm. professionally. I mean, I, I do do it quite a lot. I do quite a lot of after-dinner speaking. So, um, uh, well, actually, that's a funny story in itself because I never did after-dinner speaking, really. I, I always did charity stuff, but, you know, not the sort of way you know, they ring you up and they send a car for you and pay you. And one week in the Sunday Times, it listed people's fees, salaries for after dinner speaking and mine was listed at £4,000 well never done that so I never hadn't been paid for it I don't think so the next thing is somebody rang me up and asked me and I said, oh yeah thank you very much and your fee is what it said in the paper yes absolutely what it said in the paper thank you very much um, and that was rather good so so yes it's it's daunting but it's not that different and in fact it's it's easier than working with actors and um, you're your own boss you see you know you know you're going to turn up sober and so from that point of view, I quite enjoyed it. I wasn't nearly as nervous as I would have been on a first night, say. Is this a new departure for your career than stand-up, do you think? Well, I suspect it's a totally wrong departure because I've spent the last few years bemoaning the fact that nobody offers me any serious work. Because what I am offered all the time is, is, you know, will you front a documentary on the Ick Newman fly or interpersonal relationships or, you know, French knickers? interesting things like that six episodes all these these little you know tin pot independent companies all trying to get their things off the ground dear maureen you know, we are doing a 12-part documentary on fly on the walls will you front it as you're so associated with flies 
But I, what I don't get is, you know, when you play Anna Karenina, don't get a lot of that. Or even Anna Karenina's blind and incontinent grandmother. I don't even get that one now. So I thought, well, you know, this, this will be a, a departure. It's a bit depressing for my agent because she's trying to get people to take me seriously. But, you know, in the end, you've got to go where the work mm. is and you've got to make your own work, really. So what work have you got coming up? Oh, masses, darling, masses. Uh, what you mean after you've left? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm going to try and do the show in the West End. Right, okay. And also, we're going to do a presentation of a musical by Noel Coward called Sail Away, which Elaine Stritch did in 1962. So um, I've just gone back to singing classes. And that's, you know, I have this thing in life, it's a sort of masochism whereby I find something that I really like because I, it really gives me pleasure, I stop doing it. <laughs> there must be a syndrome for it. There's, there's things like jazz dancing or you know, sort of any kind of class, painting, pottery, um, and singing. And it's always like, you know, it's always at moments like this. I had to write a lecture once for Birmingham University on happiness. And you know, what does what is happiness? Well, fascinating subject, which in fact I talk about on the video, because I found it really hard to write about happiness. So I asked my daughter, then in her last year at Manchester University, what to you is happiness? Which I think is almost entirely retrospective, really. You look back on a time and you think, oh, I was happy then. And I said, well, this is the girl who, you know, in her GCSE O-level was asked the question, why is artificial insemination preferable for breeding cows? And she wrote, because it's nicer for the cow. They won't take too much notice of her. Then I asked the boy, age 19... Adam, I say, we know what's happening. Oh, happiness, he says, is all in the future. It's looking forward to things, and the actual looking forward to it makes you more happy than the thing itself. This is the boy who wrote me a poem when I was having a birthday, and he was about 14, he wrote me a poem which listed all my faults, you know, and then said, but I could never get frustrated with one in whom I once gestated. <laughs> These people are completely lunatic. But then I asked my mother, who says, what do you mean? So I said, happiness, what does it mean to you? Well, well, it's like when you're sitting with a lot of nice people having a cup of tea. And basically that is true for her. So I'm now getting the picture that happiness is totally not altruistic, it's totally to do with you. And then I asked Jack, and we were in bed at the time, I said, what's happiness to you, Don? There was this really long silence. Which I thought, oh, he's gone to sleep, you know, just about. And then he said, happiness is when you suddenly want to laugh, although there's absolutely nothing funny happened it's as if the soul had a funny bone so oh my god that's so brilliant that's mm. so brilliant you were perfect and this is from the man who i describe as someone whose idea of a good night out is staying in <laughs> and then you know then i thought about it myself does going on stage make me happy which is how i led into this when you asked me that question you know, so, well you know the times are so few and far between when it's all right you know when the the night is right and the audience is right and the digital pages aren't going off and the band isn't, you know, lying in a drunken heap on the floor covered by copies of the Fisherman's Weekly and, and you know, all your co-stars have turned up and everybody's speaking to everybody else and there's not a, a drought and a hosepipe ban in Shaftesbury Avenue and, you know, it's just so rare. And one moment when I remember feeling incredibly happy suddenly, it was a musical and I took my bow and I thought, yes! This is wonderful. And I took another bow and I thought, I'm so lucky. And I took another bow and I thought, and you're so lucky, you know. And as I was leaving the stage, one of the leading men said to me, how much do you pay in car insurance? 
You know, it just, it's never the same for any two people. But I do know that when I was, you know, singing and dancing in that musical, and when I was t- just turned 40... Is that my kind of town? One of the town, yeah. Time? I never got migraine, <laughs> and I never got down. Mm. And this week I went, so I started again, so I thought, well, I'll... St- 40, 50, I'll try to do each decade, I'll try to do a musical. So I start back at singing lessons. And um, I go with a migraine, work up very early in the morning with a migraine, I go there with sort of, you know, my head on my shoulder like a budgie. And uh, within about 10 minutes, it's gone. And I'm just absolutely, you know, incredibly happy. Yeah. And, and, and you have to work so hard, you know, you have to really, really push your diaphragm and things. And I don't do it very well, but I just have such a good time. I was saying this to um, an osteopath, and uh, he said, well, it's, it's, it's not unconnected, and he told me all about how the muscles of the diaphragm can affect the muscles of the skull and all this sort of thing, and uh, it's probably just a good thing for me to stand in a public place every day and shout my head off. But now the kids aren't little. I don't sort of do that anymore, really. So. What's happening with you TV-wise? Well, I think the, um, there will be a, a follow-up to Eskimo Day, you know, Jack's play, which he's in there finishing even as we speak, and I hope that I'm in it. I haven't been killed off <laughs> or anything. So that should be my TV for next year. As I said, this year was a disappointment. Mm. Well, because there was always going to be a second series, and I didn't. they didn't give me any reason why there wasn't, other than the actual viewing figures not being as high as 8 million. But then, of course, they were the people who put it on mm. at that time, early time, and it was quite adult, and they were the people... Well, they weren't the people. The central scheduler put it opposite Joanna Lumley, which is, I would have thought, certain death. Have you ever tried swapping roles with your husband and you doing a bit of writing and him doing, you know, writing plays, I mean? Oh, writing plays. Well, I was at Jane Asher's book launch this week, you know, and it was so interesting because all these people were wandering around saying, you know, and it's just not what you'd expect from Jane, this book. I mean, it's so dark. And I would say, well... What makes you think that Jane Ash would write a light book? Is it because she's got light hair and makes cakes? This obsession with pigeonholing people. Um, You know, you're an actor, therefore you can't paint. It's just what the whole thing about celebrity novels are. Why the hell shouldn't a celebrity write a novel? You know, Disraeli wrote novels. And nobody said, hey, Benny, don't you think you ought to stick to the day job? And, of course, if you're remotely creative, then it's very likely that you're going to be able to paint a bit and draw a bit and... And I think the more barriers we erect, the less education we get, really, mm. uh, and particularly in the, in the question of, of science, maths, as opposed to arts. Because, you know, parents give their children little, little tags from birth. This is the pretty one, this is the clever one, this is the peripatetic one. This is, you know. And so they go on into their middle years thinking, oh, I can't do maths, I'm totally enumerate, you know, because actually my brother was the maths one. And I've noticed it with my kids. You know, Amy is very artistic and was always the one who came with me to rehearsals and, and learnt all my lines and gave me notes. And he never showed any interest, you know, like he would walk out of the room when I came on the telly, he wouldn't do school plays, and, uh, you know, he never showed any inclination. Now, as they've reached adulthood, and he's just gone off to Cambridge, and I'm just waiting for him to get involved in Footlights or something in some way, because I can see that he's got this really fine timing, comic timing, a sort of mad thing about him. 
which is not to say that she hasn't, but that they've been put in those categories. She never allowed him to be dramatic, you know, so he never did. And for the same point, my brother was the maths and sport, and I was the arts and sciences. But I went to an exhibition this week of masks, celebrity masks, they were called. And uh, really, it's quite alarming how talented a lot of... A lot of uh, I mean, there's some wonderful ones... And it's not just the designers, you know, Paloma, Picasso, and, and, and those sort of... I mean, Alex Ferguson, for example. Brilliant. Because he's taken the mask not as a literal mask, he hasn't painted a face on it. He's made the, the nose into the prow of a ship, and you know. And there you think, you know, football manager, why would he be able to paint? But why not? Mm. You know, the whole thing was people used to be Renaissance people and do a bit of everything. But there's a real down on that, particularly in show business. You know, you should stick to one thing, be a classical actress or be a comedian as if there was any difference in the way that you approach either role. But, it's, you know, I mean, you just could go on and on about that forever and bore yourself to death. Well, we've got to just very briefly whiz through some of the places you lived in, but you were originally from Hull, aren't you? Yes, I am, twinned with Sierra Leone, <laughs> in case you're wondering. <laughs> it's quite good, actually. So I, I went to... Um, I had to make a speech in Manchester about Salford for some reason. I was speaking at some... I can't remember what it was now, some Salford... Oh, God, no, I was, I was getting a thing at Salford University. Anyway, I needed to know what Salford was twinned with for, the, for this, this thing. So I rang the Manchester Town Hall. I said, um, excuse me, can you tell me where Salford is twinned with? And she said, oh, I'm ever so sorry, he's at lunch. <laughs> so I said, who's at lunch? She said, town twinning officer is at lunch. Town twinning officer is a fella with a job. Yeah. He comes in every day with a plastic globe and he sits there and he <laughs> says, oh, now Valparaiso, should I say, now what would a cheetle hume, that might be nice. You know, oh, it's just amazing. And uh, so Hull now... Yes, I do quite a lot about Hull in the tape, actually, because it's quite a good place to spring from mm. for a comedian. There I go, pigeon home myself. But for the benefit of this video, I suppose I am a comedian. So who else came from Hull, then? A lot of um, comics. I mean, Arthur, right. Arthur Lucan died there, of Mother Riley, on stage. He's buried there. But the people who lived to tell the tale... Ah, uh, Tom Courtney, Barry Rutter, John Alderton, Ian Carmichael, Brian Ricks. Quite a lot of funny people. How long did you live there for? 18 years. Yeah, and then I, and I've lived in London ever since. I've lived much longer in London, but I'm still very much a northerner, and I think one always is. But now when I go back, of course, Hull is incredibly pretty. You know, they've turned the docks where my dad's shop used to be beside the docks. They've turned it into a marina with tubs of flowers and wonderful little bijou restaurants. I can't believe it. But it's nice. I mean, it's a very nice... And often... First of all, my first clue that it was nice was that my friend's kids used to go to university there and say, oh, it's the most wonderful city. You know, I had the greatest time of my life. I think, Jesus, what are they talking about? I, mean, I used to go about saying, you know, when a man is tired of Hull, he's normal. And then, I, you know, I had to go back for a few sort of civic things and I realised that he's actually... You know, now that the bottom's dropped out of the fish market, it is actually a beautiful place. And the people are hilarious. The accent is mm. totally hilarious. Because they say things like fern curls. That's F-E-R-N-C-U-R-L-S. Fern curls, right? And turd stools, T-U-R-D-S-T. I'm just going erm, E-R-M. There's this wonderful flat accent, you know. Did you have to have elocution lessons yourself then? You mean you can't tell? <laughs> yes, I did. I did have elocution for years. And it's funny how life recycles itself, because a week ago I was at Queen Elizabeth Hall for a festival of winners of musical festivals, and I sat there with my school friend, Val. Well, she was um, my best friend in Hull, and 
we did Sir Peter and Lady Teasel together at the musical festival and all I remember is that we never got any further than the first line. Love, Sir Peter, I hope you have not been annoying Mariah whilst I am not by. She was Sir Peter and I was Lady Teasel. We never got any further than that because we were at that stupid girly where you just giggle about everything. And in the end, the elocution teacher, who was a dear and a wonderful teacher called Gwen Sibley, who obviously believed in me and couldn't bear to see me going through this awful patch, sent us home. And my father told me that I was never to see Valerie again, so I locked myself in the lavatory and, and, and sucked my arm till it bled, you know, the sort of mature thing you do when you're that age. She, she couldn't give it a toss, of course. She just, oh, well, fine. <laughs> what brought you to London from, in the first place? Was it show business? Yeah, to go to drama school. I sort of applied to university, but I'd always put on my thing that I want to be an actress on my form, so nobody even saw me. And then I, went, I applied to a few drama schools... One of which was Rose Bruford, they didn't take me, and one of which was Lambda, and they did. And, in fact, I recently spoke to someone who was at my audition uh, all those years ago and remembered me. So that was it. I left. My mother got me digs through the Jewish Chronicle in Barron's Court with two sisters, and I I moved into um, Earl's Court land. and, 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 of course, the difference between then and now would be that I wouldn't have got in now. I mean, I wouldn't have been able to afford the fees now because I got a full grant and a middle class kid now would not be able to pay the fees and would only be given a discretionary grant so I mean really people like Tom Courtney Glenda Jackson none of them would have been allowed to go to drama school you have this absurd situation where somewhere like the Guildhall School the music students have all got a full grant and the ballet and dance students ballet and acting students only, you know, just get a mandatory grant so they can't afford to live, so they're having to man the canteen and sweep the place. It's incredible. And I actually watched Virginia Bottomley at, the, um, at this musical festival thing. God, talking about how important culture is to us. This was before her singing days, of course. How important culture is to us and how we must treasure the arts and how she sometimes... She, she often prefers amateur theatre to professional one, and I thought, of course you do, because you don't bloody have to pay for it, do you? Oh, it's a sad and sorry sight, really. Were you homesick for Hull when you first came to London, or was the excitement of being here so much that you didn't think about Hull? Do you know, I don't remember being homesick. My daughter was terribly homesick when she went to Manchester. The first year, I think she rang us about every 12 minutes, <laughs> and we were, t- we were all in a terrible state. But when I came here, I think, you see, the difference is, going to university is so different from going to drama school, because... You know, you go to a strange town university, you have two lectures a week, and the rest of the time, what do you do? You get legless, you know, when you've got a friend. You spend desperate to get a friend in the first few weeks, and then you just get a friend, you just get legless. Now, in drama school, you go to work at 9 o'clock in the morning, and you do till 6 o'clock, and then you have a show to rehearse in the evening. So it's a job already. So, you, you know, you're with people. There's only, like, 30 people in the entire school who so are with people all the time. You want to go and try and see shows, sneak in, do a bit of usherating, you know. It's a different world, and it does teach you much more about work. How long did you have to wait for your big break, and what do you think was your big break? Well, very fortunate. Left drama school and went straight into a good part at Watford in the neck, playing the girl. So it was part chutzpah, um, you know, which is best def- defined as a small boy peeing through someone's letterbox and then ringing the doorbell to see how far it went. And that was sort of, you know, I went to this man, Giles Havigal, and I, I told him that I'd got a documentary film about a young actress starting her first job. 
so if you'd give me a job, it would be publicity for his theatre. Mm-hmm. And he gave me the job, although he told me later he didn't believe one single syllable of it. She was a lousy actress, I must have been. <laughs> so I was very lucky. I went straight mm-hmm. into work at Watford. And then I got up the junction, which is the biggest film part I've ever had right. before or since. Um, You're showing some of your old TV repeats on Channel 4, though, right? some sitcom you're in with... Porter Wilcox, is it? Oh, (laughs) it's actually, um, yeah, The Lovers, which was one of Jack's early sitcoms with Richard Beckinsale and Paula Wilcox. And I was just in one episode. It was before we married. It was well before. We were sort of early courting, I think we could call it. And um, I remember feeling a bit odd coming into someone else's series and being the, the writer's bit on the side. I was a bit worried about it. And it's just hilarious to watch myself because I had this really sort of little round face and that, you know, that shaggy haircut that we used to have? What sort of accommodation did you live in in the early years before you obviously moved into this house? A lot of uh, pieces of condemned veal. (laughs) Oh, it's awful. My poor mother used to come up and open the oven door and things would crawl out. We were completely ignorant of cleanliness or... You know, we, we did our laundry, and I think that was about it. Leslie Joseph and I used to share a flat in Earl's Court, and really, you know, I can't believe this. You know how they say you can't experience someone else's experience? Well, when I went to my daughter's flat in Fallowfield in Manchester, I just, my jaw dropped, just like my mother's did, and I, I tried to keep myself from doing it for about ten minutes. Then she gave me a cup of tea and a cup that looked like botulism had grown in it and I just said, I don't understand how you can live like this and it was like this terrible echo coming back as I repeated the same mistakes because you have to remember that at 21 you don't see things like skirting boards, it's only when you've got your own skirting board that you notice the chips in it so, but we are condemned to repeat the same mistakes aren't we? Do you still get on well with Leslie Joseph, are you still good friends? Yeah, we talk. We don't see each other that much. She lives in uh, the side of London, South London. But then we went to her son's bar mitzvah quite recently. And uh, we've stayed in touch. We moan on each other's shoulders a considerable amount. I think, you know, in terms of friendship, we had a difficult patch when she was doing Dorian and I was doing Beatty because, you know, there was just this frenzy to kind of lump us together into a a sort of ghetto, and I was going through some kind of identity crisis about myself. Am I really a grey wig woman with grey hair of a certain age? But, you know, we got over that, and we're very fond of one another and uh, and supportive. I mean, she will, you know, she'll, she'll be there in a crisis, and I hope I'll be the same, really. She's got great kids, a bit younger than mine, you know. But we have missed out on quite a few years largely just our lives have just gone off, you know, in different ways. She was in wonderful town, so we saw quite a lot of each other then. When and how did you find this house? This house we found when we were trying to move out of this area. (laughs) Big mistake in life is to fall in love with bricks and mortar if it's not the place you want to live. We lived in Hampstead in a flat, and we... We really liked it. Just you and Jack? Yeah. Right. And then and Amy when she was born. And then, you know, the old trap is that you say, well, I, I must buy what I, for what I sell. Yeah. And so if we wanted a house, and we were selling a flat, we moved out to Muswell Hill, and it was a great area where the kids were little. There's a park and mother's groups, and not that I did too much of that, but the schools were fine while they were little and everything. And now it's sort of, you know, seven pizza houses and... 
12 building societies and a Moroccan wall hanging shop, but it, you know, it's still a, a lovely area to bring your kids up in. But now I would really like to move. But what happened was that we, we outgrew that house and then we saw this house, which is just around the corner, and he couldn't not live in it, really. It was, um, it was a, a house with a, a family atmosphere that you could practically touch. It was a happy house, and it has been. Big square rooms like a kid would draw if he were at a playgroup. And it's been, apart from the fact that it nearly killed my husband because he fell down the trapdoor for a week after we. Then he got tennis elbow from cleaning a fireplace, trying to strip the paint off. We had him in a wheelchair, couldn't move anything when we first moved in. I was practically having a nervous breakdown because I was doing this play that, oh dear, was getting in my head. And uh, But, you know, having gotten over those birth traumas, it's been. A wonderful house, and people really love it. It's not like a, it's not sort of glamorous house. It's a, it's a, it's like as if some sort of really avuncular doctor lived here with good vibes for many years. So I do love it. And about a year ago, I thought, right, that's it. Now we're going to move out to West Hampstead, or to Hampstead Garden suburb, or some other thing with Hampstead in it. And um, we started getting all these papers from the. And all I could think about was moving house. You know, Jack had written the chain and moving story and, you know, all these horror stories. And so I just called in a decorator and we just did the place over. <laughs> Why do so many members of the Jewish community live in this area, in the Hampstead area? Um, not that many in, in Muswell Hill. Maybe they think they could beat a hasty retreat at the old A1 <laughs> in, in the event of trouble. I suppose, really, what happened sociologically is that they, when the immigrants came in, the place they could afford to live and work was in the East End. Mm. And once they had made a bit of money, they then moved out to sort of um, the Hackney-Stamford Hill area, just a bit further out. And when they got a bit more comfortable, then they just moved slightly further over to Golders Green. It's all, it's all quite clear as the crow flies. Uh, and once Golders Green, then you're really, you know... You, mm. You want, to, you want to be in an area with a lot of Jewish people in it, but you don't want to be in a ghetto, so you start spreading a bit through Hampstead Highgate and ultimately Mayfair, if you can ever make that, you know, just like any other group, really. Do you know who lived in this house before you, much about its history? Um, it was built in 1910, and there have only, I think, only been um, a couple of other owners. There was a lovely family when we moved in, the Webbs. And, you know, it's just like, like it will be with us. The kids have grown up and gone and they've suddenly found themselves rattling around in this house. And they'd left all the nicest things in it, the fireplaces and the fine old doors and um, a few things we had to do, obviously, uh, to make it us. And do we have over the years, but not, not anything now if we can help it. We just, mm. you know, basically dust it every Michaelmas and, and hope for the best, you know. What did you do then to make it you... To make it me, well, I was, you know, at the time I was obsessed by Monet's kitchen in Giverny, mm, yeah, mm. and uh, so I wanted this, you know, yellow and blue kitchen, which of course is now it's now awfully difficult to get anything that's not a yellow and blue kitchen, isn't it? But at the time it was quite innovative, mm. and I wrote all these letters off to people saying, "How can I get?" And I got small bone fitted kitchens to come and do it of course, but it was quite a small firm in those days, and drag it in lemon and, and, and drag it in, and paint the um, all the bits in, in near, you know, around the drawers in blue, but it was quite different. I've had it done three times since then. This is my advice to young kitchen. My, in fact, I've got a whole chapter about it in the book, about, you know, advice to people starting homes. 
don't believe that you need a fitted kitchen for a start. That's the big con to get you to pay £90 for a fitted hole to fit your poles in so that you can put your tea cloths on, you know. But you end up thinking, hang on a minute, there's a gap here that I'm paying £90 for, probably a lot more now. But actually then, because there were some quite strong fitted cupboards still left, you know, we managed to make everything look the same. And, you know, I had to have the lot. I had to have a white oven and a white fridge to fit in with the yellow and blue. And I had to, everything had to be flush. And I had to have the counter and tiled surfaces. Everybody said, don't have tiled surfaces. And they were right. Then I realised that this was something which it benefits kitchen planners and not people. Because a kitchen... The, the best cooks I know work in tiny kitchens for a start. Galley kitchens. Serious cooks. And really you have to just say, what do I need? Here's what I need. I need a place to store all my pans and my cups and saucers. And if they're nice cups and saucers, which in this case they're, they're not, they're dispensable with, then it'd be nice to have a glass-fronted something or other. So we're talking Welsh dresser here of some kind. I need a desk place where I can answer the phone and take the weight off my feet. I need a table so I can sit and eat what I've cooked. I need a counter to prepare things. I need a fabulous sink area, big sinks and an immediate access to waste you know, to somewhere to bung all your waste oh, Other know. than the kitchen though, what else have you done to the house? Oh right What did we do? Well we put a staircase down to the cellar so that Jack wouldn't invalid himself on a regular <laughs> basis We took down walls in this kitchen to make it the shape it is mm. We didn't do that much structurally but there was a hell of a lot of dust about I can remember it being in my eyelashes and in my knickers Everywhere I went to work, bits of dust, bits of old skin would drop off me. And uh, it wasn't that much structural work. We decorated everywhere, of course. And um, we still continue to do that, really. It's like the fourth bridge. So what was the date you moved in, and what was the date it was actually ready by? Well, it took us about two years, I suppose, a year and a half to mm. get it ready. And that was then, you know, 12 years later, we then mm. decorated it all over again, because you do. Mm. There were some lovely parquet floors, but by the time Adam had played football repeatedly, you know, mm. they had gone too thin and everything, and we did put down quite a fair amount of antica, mm. which is fake but glorious. And we did, you know, all the, all the fireplaces and... Mm. and uh, Various sort of trompe l'oeil things, like mm. in the bathroom, the old bath that's on the cover of mm. my first book, was hand-painted, as were all the cornices, by Chris Clark, who's a stage painter. He does things like the backdrops for Phantom of the Opera. Mm. And, um, you know, if you need a Kadinsky in Six Degrees of Separation, he's the guy who does it. And he's painted my jacket for this book front. Yeah. Um, you can read me like a book. He painted it as a library with lots of rows of books on it. I'll show you it before you go. It's yeah, a really fantastic cool. jacket. Um, this must have been a great house for the kids to grow up in, wasn't it? I mean, you must have had some happy memories with that. Yeah, a lot of parties here. The party mm. every New Year's Eve, lots of piano playing and kids running around constantly, mothers, fathers, endless au pairs, endless, all with their lovers and their mm. stories to tell. You were saying earlier that one of the au pairs' boyfriend's husbands inspired London's burning. Mm. Yeah, Ruth, who came to us from Switzerland, was going out with a fireman who she's later married, Les. Mm. That was at the other house, though. We made the wedding from the other house. 
And uh, it was Leslie's stories which inspired London's Burning, which has gone on for ten years. And they've been married now and had two kids. <laughs> London's Burning's still going on. Does Les know and does he get royalties? Should really, shouldn't mm, he? Mm, he's a window cleaner now, <laughs> so we still see him. He comes and does the window. Yeah, you must uh, really have missed the kids when they moved out, or have they not completely moved out yet? Well, Amy's back now because she's mm. finished Manchester University this year. What's she doing? Well, she got a first-class degree in drama, and she she's um, trying to make up her mind how best to write. She, mm. she, she sort of wants to write. Ideally, what Amy wants is a job where she can meet her friends for brunch, lunch, tea and dinner. She do this job. <laughs> Probably, yeah. And in the interim, just paint mm. pictures of elves and pigs and mm. unicorns and things. And then she'd be very happy. Mm. But, you know, we keep trying to tell her that in life you probably have to support yourself at some point. It would be mm. nice to get a job. But she does work part-time in a press office, PR office, for Joyce Speaker. Mm. She writes their press releases, and she, she does... They're, mm. they're very keen on her there. And you must be happy to have her back home, aren't you? Oh, God. I mean, we sit waiting for the key to turn in the mm. lock. It's pathetic. But it's not as bad now he's gone, because he's so much more... So much more independent. Mm. He just said bye mm. last Friday. I mean, he is emotional in his way, but he's just having spent seven and a half months going around the world with a pack on his back and right. dysentery in his stomach. He is able to take on things much easier, so we don't worry about him. So he's Adam, is Adam, yeah. He right. went last Friday to Cambridge, to Kings, right. and we haven't heard from him since, so I guess he's fine. What's um, he studying there? Classics. Oh, excellent. Oh, yeah, well, he's 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 quite academic, yes, but he's no brighter than she is really. She's mm. just um, scatty, mm. like me. And she doesn't put, you know, but when she does put it all together, and she's got a little play being that she wrote. I shouldn't say a little play; it does sound patronising. She's got a play, short play that she wrote mm. while still at university, which she's entered for the royal court young playwriting competition so that's going to be done as a radio presentation at the ambassador's theatre you can go and put headphones on and listen mm. and uh, she's sort of doing a bit of script reading and, and just trying to sort out what she does terribly hard when they come out mm. have to live at home again and answer to your you know why is your room in this appalling state how can you live there I was going to ask you how, um, how many people you've got living here because you seem to have loads of staff here <laughs> I haven't got anyone living here but me and Jack right. I've got Carmela who comes in the mornings and uh, Jackie, my secretary, who comes in the mornings. Seems to be still here in the afternoon, so that's it really. And you've caught me on a Friday. It's funny, journalists always come to the house on a Friday. It's kind of the worst day, because then that's when Dave's here as well, so it really does look as if I'm running a sort of small country mansion or something, doesn't it? Cook, gardener. I hope you'll note that I'm cooking. <laughs> Just soup and chicken, you know, I haven't done anything else to go with anything and there's no dessert, but I am actually cooking. How much entertaining do you do here? Do you have great parties? Um, well, I had a big 50th party this year yeah. um, at Lord's, but um, I, I haven't had a, a party here for a short while. I normally have a New Year's party every year and sort of, uh, you know, 100 and odd people. And then when I don't have a party, I wonder where they're all going. Because it's certainly... <laughs> <up> <laughs> I'm not going to their place. Where are they all? And I suppose I don't do many dinner parties. I have chums over, and if they're here, I'll cook. But the days of the massive... I did actually have 12 the other night, because my mother was here. So I invited all these people, you know, who she would have known. Hmm. But unfortunately, I hurt myself on a lettuce before they arrived, because I was packaging 
bloody packaging, you know how everything is. Well, it wasn't even that. It's just that everything is so tightly sealed now, so mm. that animal liberationists can't get into it. That you should, I completely wrenched my back trying to. Oh, no. oh, so I had to go to the osteopath and say, you know, can you help me? I've put my back out on a lettuce. Very Victoria Wood, that, isn't it? Yeah. Great story, though. Um, have you had many distinguished people around here? I mean, um, Barbara Streisand, has your husband worked with him? <laughs> he did, but I haven't had her round. No, right. I, if she'd come round, I'd have been out. Really? Well, I'd have been panic-stricken. Oh, I see, right. Yeah. You like to entertain. I did have, I'll tell you who came round, a, a memorable brunch, because I do do brunch on a Sunday. And uh, Sharon Glass, you know, who was currently oh, yes. in Lacey... Uh, who became quite a good friend while she was over here working on the Neil Simon play, Chapter mm. 2. And she came over for brunch with a whole gang of people, and I cooked and burnt 17 eggs, scrambled eggs. Because you were so nervous? Or? I wasn't nervous. It's just that if I have that many people, if I have 10 or 12 people, then I have to do it in the in the dining room, which means that I'm not there. Mm. And I'm so anxious not to miss anything that I just forget what's cooking. So I keep, mm. by the time I gone back, there were 17 black eggs. So anyone apart from Sharon Glass, regulars around here, Leslie Joseph? Or? <laughs> I wish I could give you more starry names, but most of my friends are not even in the business. Right. Um, Julia Mackenzie's a dear friend, oh, yeah. and, uh, and she now lives in Oxfordshire, so right. I wouldn't say she's been around here lately. But well, You talked earlier about the possibility of moving house. Do you think you're, you're here forever, or do you think you might move sometime? Oh, no, I think we'll move. We'll move in. Mm. Um, I mean, we've spent quite a few... In fact, I wrote my last article... For good housekeeping on the country, which I've mm. just discovered is the place that's around London. You have to go to it. And I've had a few nice experiences there in Dorset, mm-hmm. Sherburn and um, Wiltshire. Uh, and I've enjoyed it, really. And, I mean, it, it does. It, is a, it must be wonderful to have a country... But I don't know how a country place. I don't know how mm. people run their lives when they're going to a different place at the weekends. I mean, I, I can hardly get down to the post office on a weekend, mm. really. So you're a city type, really. I am a yeah. city girl. You're going to go closer and closer into London. Until, I'm, until I'm probably drowned in the Thames, yeah. <laughs> no, I like, I, I do like visiting it, and you do feel good, but I don't know how people... Mm. In fact, someone from the Times rang me last week, as they invariably do, you know. Everybody knows my number and where I live, and they ring me up and ask me these you know, really preposterous questions like, you know, what do you think of evenings? Mm. You know, well, I... They come off God, the They fill a gap between <laughs> the afternoon and the night, don't they? It's funny, because my mother always used to say, I'm having an evening, and she mentions having people round, but he said to me, can I... I'm doing an article on green wellies. I said, oh, yes. That note of his voice, he said, um, are you a green welly person? I said, well, do I look like a green welly person? Well, I understand, understand that you have a place in the country. I said, do I look like mm-hmm. someone has a place? <laughs> I, had a we- I said, I haven't had a pair of wellies since the old king died. I said, I've got some sneakers and a lot of shoes, not quite as many as Imelda. But <laughs> green wellies? No, you're talking about, you want one of those women who drives one of those bloody great four-wheel vehicles, as Victoria Wood says, you know, with bars at the front so that you can stop a rhinoceros and... You know, and you've got one spindly little kid in the back that you're delivering to the Bunny Hop Montessori playgroup. She does a whole thing about it. At the, I went to see her at the Albert Hall yeah. the other night. Very funny. Um, but no, that's, I, I've never been... I couldn't organise myself. I'd like it. Mm. But I can't... I find it hard, you know, I've had a cooker that's not been working properly for about a year and a half. So even with my secretary and my Carmela and everything, I find it very hard to organise people to come on a day when I'm here or... Mm. Or to, and the idea to say that next Saturday I'll be in Bridgeport or somewhere mm. and to have invited people to join you for dinner at the Black Swan. I did get to Lavenham the other week with my, um, took my mum. And, um, oh, God, it was sensational, sensational. Suffolk I like a lot. Mm. 
I could easily, um, and now that Adam's at Cambridge, I could, the whole house is ringing. <laughs> stop them, stop them. The garden, please, just, just, just tell us something about the garden. Um, the garden was in uh, sort of sections when we moved in. There was a large and very old rose garden with mostly very tired old roses across the middle, and I'm afraid it had to be sacrificed to the... Uh, future career of Master Adam Rosenthal as a member of Juventus, which uh, didn't actually happen, but he got many, many years of kicking the ball upstream and uh, ruining everything we ever tried to plant. So now we have a a decent-sized lawn. It's very quiet back there, considering it's the main road, and uh, you can... Well, of course, main road is very quiet these days, isn't it? (laughs) Sorry, footballer's joke. Um, And... You know, there's quite a few old, old plants and things and an awful lot of wasp-ridden cooking apples on the floor and uh, lots of presents because a lot of people buy me plants for my birthday or Christmas and so it's full of memories. I can't remember who gave me what, but it is full of memories, even if the, the memory is only, you know, oh, I wonder who gave me that. And you were given the phone box for obvious reasons, and mm-hmm. the letterbox as well? Where'd that come from? The letterbox I scavenged um, because I had the phone box and I could, mm. it just looked so unbalanced without something red at the other side. Mm. I couldn't find Santa Claus, so I got a post box. And it's, it's actually very interesting because it's quite an old one. And, um, you know, you, if you look on the inside of, of old post boxes, the mechanisms are absolutely beautiful. Oh, right. All sorts going right. on in there. And then the summer house at the bottom was... Um, you know, just part of a garage, mm-hmm. which so I just had the glass put in the front and everything, and it's rather quaint. Mm-hmm. And then the observatory on the right was built when Adam was frenetically interested and, and hugely knowledgeable in astronomy. Mm-hmm. It's got an eight inch Newtonian reflector in it, mm-hmm. which is a bit of a joke in our family because I thought it would be eight inches long when it came through the door carried by about 12 men, and it was eight inches wide and about seven foot high. I nearly had a fit. Um, but of course he sort of went off it because he couldn't really see anything. We're up right. here in uh, on a hill, and it's you know the the, the smog descends, mm-hmm. and you say you can't see them. But we did see some incredible aspects of the moon. It was always so bloody cold out there that we always came in again, and people kept breaking into it. So to... mm-hmm. And then there's the chimney pots which come from Earl and Susan, the potters who've made mm-hmm. so many of the things in the house, mm-hmm. including my statue. They go up north and buy all these northern chimneys to plant mm-hmm. your. And you get a few beer barrels. And um, Was it the drawing room we went in after the kitchen, or the living room, was it? Living room. room. Yeah, that was the dining room when we... For, we had that as the dining room. But then it's just so cosy, and it's south-facing, and you look at the yeah. garden, so we swapped over. But we haven't really decided on a function for the living room, which is a bit grander. And we've just got Jack in there with his WPC and a huge billiard table, which mm. they don't use that much now because... It's too much of a fag to put it away again. Mm. And people sit down for dinner and they feel all these balls in their laps and they think they're in for a better time than they're actually going to get. <laughs> so that room, I've had it decorated. And now I just have to think of a use for it because really what I should do is make it cosy, get a smaller table, make it cosy so that the kids can hang out in one room and we can hang out in the other. Mm. At the moment, we just go, when they have 15 huge friends round, mm. we go to bed. <laughs> Or into the kitchen, or mm-hmm. yeah. Now the office over there—it's your office, isn't it? Yeah, that's my study. But I don't do much in there for some reason. It's—it's uh, it's a lovely room, but it smacks of work, so I don't go in there much. I tend to write in bed or in front of the telly or on a train. And I have written 
you know, this month's article for Good Housekeeping, I went up there last night and forced myself to do it because I knew I had so much work coming up and I had to be ahead of myself. And fortunately, you know, something will always happen to me to give me a column. I've been doing it for ten mm -hmm. years now. Yeah. And uh, this time it was that a friend of mine in Jersey was 80 and she didn't want to have any fuss and she's an absolutely wonderful lady and rather like Lady Brecknell. So my mother and I got on a plane to go over there except we missed it and uh, had to go later. And um, she was taken to a restaurant for lunch, and, and I came in the back entrance and dressed as a waitress and brought her a Dover soul, you see. It was just mm. this wonderful sort of moment of Michael Aspel-like yes. incredulity. You're a great collector yourself. Well, you mean posters of things we've been in, yeah, either of us, yeah. or done. I've tried to put everything, all the memorabilia from the 27 years, in my study so that it, it isn't in the toilet and it isn't in the house much. But it does creep around so much now. And um, and I thought Jack's Yentl poster, picture of Barbara Streisand dressed as, as uh, you know, as, as a housefrau mm. and looking through the camera is just so wonderful. Mm. That should be for everyone. And, uh, you know, if something is kind of universal, I don't mind it being around the house. But I'm not a great one for putting awards out. Although I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm not one of these people who say, oh, I use it as a toilet doorstop, mm. you know. Because I don't, I think it, it, it is a, it is wonderful to win. Mm -hmm. It's bloody awful when you don't for the best thing you've ever done. And it's, there are far too many of them and mostly they're as tacky as hell. But, you know, when you do win, it's a, it's a huge honour and I don't think it should be scoffed at, really. You know? mm. uh, very often they, they're, they're just such horrible lumps of nothing, you know. Mm. Your bedroom? Not a horrible lump of nothing. <laughs> That's me. Um, my bedroom I just had redone and I wanted it to be like a sort of American, like the sort of places that I saw when I was in the Catskills and... New York County, Liberty County and places, and it's very much a kind of slightly folksy but slightly chic, and these colours, this blue and maroon, I just picked up because I bought this quilt, and it's a really cheap and cheerful quilt, but I, I adore it with, you know, uh, 12 different appliqued pictures on of very sort of homesteady things, and I love the colours, the dark green and the petrol blue and the maroon, and... Uh, and it goes in the washing machine, so I don't have to worry about the antique stitching coming out and 1,200 blind nuns going out of business or anything. Um, and then I just base the room around it, and it's quite restful, quite restful. You know, I mean, you find odd things, like if you get maroon sheets, you'd feel hot. Mm. I don't know why, but you, know, you find out these things after you've spent hundreds of quid on maroon sheets. Mm. And you're facing the main road, it doesn't? You've got double glazing there. So. Yeah, it was a shock yeah. the first night. <laughs> the noise, but now I don't hear it. Mm. I've got double glazing, and so is as Adam in his room. But mm. um, no, I really could sleep almost anywhere now after this. But it is—you see—you listen. It is actually mm. quite peaceful. How but many bedrooms are there in the whole house? Five. Oh, and you've got downstairs in the cellar. You've got some got an ironing room, right. and then my daughter's in the attic, which I should really have the loft converted because yeah. it would be fabulous up there. Yeah. If that was a real place mm. for the kids. I don't know whether I want to do that yet there's, you know when I might mm. be moving and then there's a guest room which is pretty mm. characterless really which mm. is my mother's room I keep meaning to do something with it and never do mm. I mean I was in when I was in Jersey I went into some of the most amazing houses I've ever seen I mean there was one house and the guy had in his dressing room which is about the size of this bedroom he had two electronic tie selectors that went 
Right, right, right. And the ties went round. So you could select the oh, day. He had so. two. Yeah. He had a rising wooden trunk at the end of his bed. Which he was very fat, I suppose. Yeah, it was quite fat, wasn't <laughs> yeah. it? Um, there's fantastic, unbelievably, yeah. over and the top. Your bathroom, finally? Oh, the bathroom was, um, yeah, it was, that was very me. I mean, I have, I suppose I've done the whole place without any help, so where I take the blame as well as the credit. And I'm pleased with the bathroom because we were told we couldn't have a soil stack and we had to dig yeah. up Colney Hatch Lane and everything. And I'd, I used to sit on the floor really upset with this flowered toilet in my lap. I tell you, it's, it works, that's the main thing. Um, it's snug and it's it, it uses the Victorian lines without being too, you know, sort of pompous and gilt and I mean all the all the brass stuff on the taps is all mm. pitted and pocked and the bath is scratched. But the bath was painted again by Chris Clark, you know, and it's painted to match the toilet, which is rather camp, and the wash basin. So with turquoise flowers and things. Of course, now the bedrooms a different shade of blue altogether. But I'm not going to get him back. <laughs> And I'll tell you, if I was to move now, I think I would probably move to somewhere very minimalistic. Because mm. two doors down the road, it's not the same period of house, but it's the same dimensions. And they have the whole of one wall, it's glass, and they can sit out at night and just walk. That's, so that's the f double, right? Mm. And they sit and watch the foxes in the gardens at mm. night, in the oh, suburban foxes. And they've got parquet flooring, two leather sofas, a glass table and a sort of six-foot-high vase with two tulips in it, you know. And it's so gorgeous. Everything's black and white and monochrome, and except for the odd flash of wonderful mm. turquoise or lavender. And I love it. I mean, I think it's absolutely gorgeous. And I think perhaps now the kids are not with us permanently, as it were, that uh, I could do that and just get rid of this clutter. Mm. I mean, I am up to my knee joints in things that I really don't need. Chachkas, you know what chachkas mm. are? Right. Well, they're, they're things you collect. Right. And you don't ascribe yeah. sentimental value to, mm. um, except you've forgotten why and who mm. gave it and everything. And um, I don't need it all, really. I'm getting to a point where I could say goodbye to Victoriana and really move mm. quite happily, not up into the millennium, but maybe into the 30s, maybe into sort of a bit of, you know, this modern art mm. deco or... You know, it's really nice. Have you got any famous neighbours here? Well, Linda Belling used to live around the corner, but she's split now and gone mm -hmm. to Crouch End, which is not far. She's got an absolutely gorgeous maisonette. Uh, famous neighbours? Um, probably not. I mean, Victoria's down the road in Highgate, and there are a lot of actors around here, mm. but I don't really know them. Phyllis Logan lives around here, mm. and Sean Bean, or did. He's split as well. It's the curse of Muswell yeah. Hill. It's like Hello Magazine. Yeah.